Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 1, Episode 13, Route 666. This week, we are joined by special guest, licensed social worker, Carol Ferry. Let's get this show on the road. Before we get started with today's episode, we do want to offer a content warning to our listeners. Because of the nature of this episode, we will be discussing systemic racism, misogyny noir, and white supremacy. If those aren't topics you're feeling comfortable with right now, or at all, you might want to come back to this episode a little later, or skip it entirely. We understand. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, Carol. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited. For our listeners, let me introduce Carol. Carol is a registered social worker, counselor, and a longtime Supernatural fan. She has a Bachelor's of Social Work with a minor in Psychology and a Master's of Social Work in the field of Social Justice and Diversity. Carol has worked in community activism and development and currently works as a single session and crisis counselor. Is there anything I missed or you want to add on? Nope, nope. I think that's it. Are we ready for Drew's recap of the week? Uh, I believe there was a challenge issued by our producer. One minute. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. One minute recap. I woof. Count me in. All right. Three, two, one, go. There's a truck that's racist and it's killing people. The brothers show up to try to stop it because they think it might be something spooky. We then meet Dean's long-term ex-girlfriend who knows about their secret. They stop the truck from being a murderer and being racist. Is that it? That's really all there is to this episode. (laughs) I mean, does the truck stop being racist? We can unpack that. They stop the truck's racist acts. (laughs) There we go. So Drew, you have about 34 seconds left, which is probably a a record. So that means that you have used less than 30 seconds to do a recap. Well, let's see. I mean, yes, I kind of went liberal with this one, but did I miss anything major? No. No. So if we can move into the long game, I just have two little things to add to to this recap. Can you remind me the name of Dean's ex-girlfriend? Oh, what was it? uh, Cassie or something? Okay, cool. So, like, if you were to want, like, a diminutive or, like, a nickname for her, what would it be? I'd call her Cass, something cute and simple like that. I think Cass. Cass is a good name. I could see Dean with a Cass. It just works for me. No further questions, Your Honor. The second thing is just that it's the first time that the brothers actually discuss, like, and they try to figure out if the job is worth missing out on relationships. And that's the first time that we're seeing this and witnessing it. Yeah, I feel like we got a very small precursor to it in the episode with the shapeshifter. Kind of the whole, like, how does Sam keep up with his friends while living the life he's currently living? He's just sort of lying to them and Dean's all like, I don't keep anyone in my life. Well, it seems like he tried and it failed and that's why he's not a big fan of it. My two cents on this, if I can interject, is I would argue that Sam attempts to further a discussion on whether or not the job is worth missing out on life and relationships, and then attempts to start a discussion with Dean, and then just gives up and hits him over the head with a two-by-four as a way of initiating discussion. With this wonderful segue, let's move into story time. (laughs) 
let's talk a little bit about the ways in which Sam tries to have a meaningful conversation with Dean about Cassie. So at the very beginning, when Sam and Dean are talking in the car, Sam is asking Dean about Cassie, and Dean's just not very forthcoming, I think is a a very mild way to put it. Until we understand that Dean and Cassie used to date, and then Sam goes like, you mean you dated someone for more than one night? So can you guys like help me unpack a little bit? Like, What does that tell us about Dean's approach to relationships? I think it just sort of goes through a lot of what we've been saying about the way Dean doesn't like to wear his emotions. He is very repressing of things. So this is a great moment where we get to see him both repressing something, but also kind of why he feels that way. He was, as we learned, the dumb bee in this relationship. He opened himself up to somebody, shared his deepest and darkest secrets, and then was basically shooed off like he was some nut job. You know, he tried to open up and he was slapped on the back of the wrist. He did the one thing we've been asking him to do this entire time of opening up and speaking, and it was not accepted. So he continues to repress things, including repressing the fact that he has things to repress. As you say, so compartmentalizing feelings and relationships for Dean serves two purposes. One is if you are constantly on the move, if you never know where you're going to be or how long you're going to be for in one place, it serves a very real function of survivability, which is if you constantly have to move, you don't make friends, you don't make long-term attachments, you don't divulge too much because you're not going to be there to reta- maintain the relationship. Also, for I guess the Gen Zers listening to this, once upon a time, we didn't have FaceTime or cell phones with smartphone, like smartphone capabilities or constant email access so this is also in a time where like maintaining long distance friendships and relationships it's it is much much harder no it is not maintaining a relationship from the brink of uh, the banks of normandy but it's still pretty tough the second thing is he exactly what you said he made himself vulnerable and the experience of making himself vulnerable resulted in a lot of pain and i would argue he has not developed the coping mechanisms for working through emotional pain. I find that super compelling personally. I I hear that and and you can see because even even Sam at one point says, you know, like everybody's got to open up to someone some at some point and Dean replies like, "I don't." And it's just it's so like I hear such violence in that, you know, like violence against oneself. So yeah, I, I definitely feel that. What what do you guys make of, you mean you dated someone? Because Sam doesn't say like a girl or a chick or a woman. Like he really says someone. I could definitely see the reading of the fact that he's never maintained a relationship. That to Sam, it is just a matter of a relationship as shocking as it is, whether it be with a man or a woman. But I think in this case, as much as it is a viable reading, I think the real focus is just the fact that Dean is not one to form a relationship like that with anyone. I mean, at this point, the only people I think we've heard of in Dean's life for more than a day are Dad and Sam. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I also can't, I can't imagine the writers or Kripke having this amount of in-depth thought process especially not within the first season so 
I kind of love that it opens up the interpretation because in my opinion, you know, once you put art out into the world, every interpretation of it is valid. Yeah, I think the bigger focus is that he hasn't opened himself up to anyone in that way. And then the second part of it, which I do think plays into it a little bit, is it's pussyfooting around saying a black woman and identifying the character and the person he fell in love with is black. It's a way of just narrowly avoiding having, like, it's almost that thing of when you watch white people say, you know, she was, um, um, you know, she, uh, she was black. You're like, you don't have to whisper. You're describing a characteristic in the same vein. It's like, you mean you dated someone catch for like catch all for big ambiguous identity. So we maybe don't have to dig into the fact that our show is problematic towards women and people of color. I actually really like that, Carol, because it it's sort of like it plays as an umbrella term for both like differentiating race and gender here, where like there's that possibility that Dean was dating a black woman like we're seeing here, because I don't think that Sam knew at that point that she was black or it could open up the interpretation, like you said, of of him dating either a man or a woman, um, because I, I want to be clear that like. It, when we're looking at story time, we're not really looking at authorial intent. Like the goal isn't really to think about what the authors meant, but more like what can possibly be understood through what's happening. So I, I really like that, that it opens up both possibilities here. And speaking of Cassie, um, Sam, at one point, like when he starts digging a bit deeper, like he's like, okay, so clearly like that conversation didn't work. Then he ups the ante a little bit. He's like, okay, let me talk openly about Cassie. And he goes like, she's fearless, you know, I'll give her that. I bet she kicked your ass a couple of times. And he also says that thing about how Dean and Cassie never look at each other the same time, right? He looks when she's not looking and vice versa. And Sam's not quite successful again at having that conversation with Dean. So at this point, he's really just pushing his buttons. I think it does two things. One is it's just sort of Sam's attempt to connect to his brother. He's never really had, there's never been a rope to hold on to in this sense. So he's doing everything he can to grab on and pull because he might not get this chance again to get this deeper conversation with his brother, to learn about him on a non-surface level, to see the Dean that you never really got to see. I mean, they grew up basically as soldiers for John By the time Sam left and Dean was still there just being a good little soldier, there wasn't much development probably to like who he would grow up to be as an adult now that here is Sam's chance to learn who his brother is. And on the other side, I think it kind of works against Sam in the sense of specifically the terminology he chooses to use here, which is the she probably kicked your ass a couple of times in the fact that he doesn't he doesn't know and he's clearly hitting a nerve in. I mean, she did emotionally kick his ass when he opened up his heart to her and she was like, get the hell out. Mm. I read it completely differently. I actually didn't, I didn't interpret it as Sam pushing buttons to try and get to know Dean. I read it as Sam knowing full well that there was something going on here and Dean sucks at expressing emotions. So Sam was doing what he always did probably throughout their life as a little brother, which is Hey, you're not going to connect the dots on your own because you don't like actually feeling fa- feeling feelings or thinking about feelings. So I am going to 
provide the evidence and context for you for what's going on in front of your eyes so that you can fall into it and figure out that you need to finally talk to this girl about how you feel, i.e., hey, so you don't want to acknowledge that you still have feelings for her. So maybe if I point out that it's possible that she has feelings for you, like, you know, when you're not looking, she looks at you, you might get a little bit of courage to go, hey, I, I, I still, I, I feel things. And I, I read the, like, she's fearless and she kicks ass as him trying to essentially express, like, so much of your job is taking care of other people and looking out of me. And as a consequence, you don't feel like you can step back and be on equal footing with someone because you constantly have to protect them. So, hey, she can take care of herself. So if you were to indulge in feelings and how you feel about her for like half a second, she's not going to suddenly up and die because she can take care of herself. Because keep in mind, with the Winchesters, the people they love die. Sam is the externalization of Dean's inner feelings. And he like helps him walk through feelings. And Dean helps Sam build confidence. Oh, I like that. Brothers. That conversation that they have clearly helps, like, unboggle something, right? Because we have that scene of um, Dean and Cassie being intimate. Um, So clearly, like, there's something that has helped Dean externalize his feelings a bit more. And so the third time that Sam tries to have this conversation with Dean, he, to use Carol's words at the beginning of the episode, hits him with a two by four over the (laughs) head, right? Um, (laughs) In my notes, I say he goes a bit more head on. (laughs) Where he goes, yeah, you go talk to Cassie and uh, talk to her about all that unfinished business between the two of you. Yeah. And finally, Dean lets it out that he was in love with her. And Sam goes, everybody's got to open up to someone sometime. And, you know, like we talked at the beginning of the episode, Dean replies, but I don't. And so today we're lucky enough to have a social worker with us. Carol, can you tell us a little bit about the ways in which like intimacy issues are displayed in someone's life? So I'm actually going to point out something. Dean never actually says he loves her. Sam's the one that verbalizes it the whole time. That's true. And actually, when it gets as close to her saying, like, to them talking, him and Cassie actually talking about how they feel, Cassie fills in all the blanks about feeling. That's true. Intimacy, in general, is difficult. Um, Intimacy requires a very, very, like, point-blank level of vulnerability. Because, unlike physical vulnerability where you might get hurt and there's a physical um, wound and there's a repair process. Physical physical harm comes when you're with the person. Intimate harm and emotional harm basically travels with you is the way I kind of explain it. So being scared of someone physically hurting you is one thing because you have protective factors so long as not being around the person. It's Disclaimer can be way more complicated and often is way more complicated, but for the purpose of brevity, this is what I'm pointing out. Um, when it comes to emotional harm or emotional intimacy, that's a level of vulnerability that you don't turn off and is still there even if you're not around the person. So especially folks that don't experience intimacy, healthy is not the word I want to look for, I want to use, because healthy has a whole whack of problematic concepts right there but people that don't Mm -hmm. have the don't have experiences of connecting with individuals and building 
a whole whack of different types of relationships. A really good example is we're in the middle of a pandemic and probably every parent with a child under the age of 18 is dealing with some level of their kid having anxiety. And a huge part of that is we develop and understand the world by interacting with people. We build friendships, we build rivalries, we build allies, we build romantic relationships, and we all do that in social engagement. It's a huge part of how we develop as people. And especially when we're kids, it's how we figure out how to cope with emotions. Friendships are actually the first place you learn to cope with emotions outside of your parents. Dean and Sam didn't really have that. Sam actually had it to a certain extent because he developed emotional relationships with his brother and played off working out his emotional development with his brother. And we will see in later episodes that he actually also got opportunities to engage in school and make friends at school, however short-lived that was. With Dean, it's a little bit more unclear what that developmental process looked like. And having a father that went through the trauma that his dad went through, and I'm not just talking losing your wife. I'm going to remind the viewers here, John is a Vietnam War vet. So he's a man that went and fought in a war to the betterment of the United States is what he was told, got there, probably saw horrific things. A lot of vets that came back from Vietnam uh, struggled not only with the trauma of war, but the trauma of unpacking what it means to fight in a war that a lot of people saw as unjust. To develop a life, to lose his wife, to find out that for all the supposed evil overseas, there was a shit ton of evil at home that's not being dealt with and protected. And and defended. And as a consequence, that influences how he brings up his kids and the ways he thinks he's protecting his kids and the way he thinks he's protecting his children for the world. They don't learn the greatest coping skills for emotional resilience because his primary concern is not developing his kids for emotional resilience. His primary concern is developing his kids for physical resilience. Mm -hmm. Survival. Yeah, it's survival. And hierarchy of needs, if you just need to get out alive, getting out alive and emotionally healthy doesn't really matter. It's just getting out alive. Mm -hmm. And that manifests with Dean in being reluctant to form deep relation, emotional connections because he actually doesn't know how to form them in a way that feels safe to him. To him, they're all or nothing. I am either completely vulnerable and have the potential to get harmed or I don't get involved in them at all. Yeah, it's true. We don't really see Dean, like there's never even a hint up to this point of Dean having any, like even just in passing friends or acquaintances, you never see him, you know, reaching out to someone he met on the road who might be helpful or may be able to offer advice. He really is a solitary creature until he reunites with Sam. Well, I mean, Drew, just think about skin and the kind of talk he has with Sam and says, you know, these people, you're just putting them in danger. You got to cut them loose. I mean, it's, You've, we've seen it before, but we just didn't understand the depth of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And also he's not wrong. Mm. That's the hard part is that, you know, from, it is very easy for us to look at the coping mechanisms that Dean has and go, they're problematic and in they're, they're incorrect and they're harmful, but fundamentally they serve a purpose. And he's not wrong with Sam in that in that episode with Skin. We are in a situation where the more people you are entangled with, the more targets there are. Mm -hmm. You can't do that because 
and he, he comes short of saying in that episode, but he, he kind of points these things out. Dean makes a point of these, this kind of over and over again, which is they do not know what's going on. So by keeping them in your life without telling them what's going on, and we can't tell them what's going on because they're probably not going to believe us, it's irresponsible. It's the equivalent of, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a really simple equivalent. It's the equivalent of enlisting in the army, knowing that you're going to get deployed and not telling like the friends or family that you're developing relationships with, by the way, I leave in four months. That's not mm-hmm. fair. Now, if you told them, hey, I'm leaving in four months, do you still want to do this? And they made the choice to continue to engage, then they're making an informed choice and whatever happens is something they accepted and they chose to continue with, which I would actually argue is the reason why Dean told Cassie. Because Dean understands that more than anyone else. I can't continue to do this if you do not know the potential dangers of being involved with me. And he went and told the girl that he loved, hey, this is how much I care about you. I want to keep doing this, but I can't keep doing this if you don't know the possible consequences. And she said, bye. And to him, he reacted to that as this is evidence that I can't do this, period. Well, I mean, given the way he was raised, he probably already felt like he shouldn't be doing it and telling her would this mm-hmm. basically this was the expected outcome. And he felt that this was finally the one that would be different. And it wasn't. He basically proved his own point. Yeah. And there's a small psychological part of me that's going. So did he tell her because he actually wanted her consent or did he tell her because he was trying to prove to himself that it's always going to end up this way? Which she actually calls him out on, which is like, you told me. And then like like that was it we we blew up in 24 hours Mm -hmm. well so that's my next question here because we see them fighting right like there's these really intense like camera framings where you see them at completely opposite end of the frame and they're they're fighting it out like probably having the discussion that they didn't have whenever it is that they broke up can we untangle that a little bit because like you said, Carol, I'm sort of wondering now if maybe he didn't just tell her to sort of get it over with or to to kind of like test his theory that people don't stay because Dean is also very much afraid of being abandoned, right? As we've learned in previous episodes, he's he feels like his mother abandoned him by dying, that his dad abandoned him by just by not being there by not being there at this point. And Sam also abandoned him by going off to college. So was this a way to kind of prove that Cassie would also leave him? I think that's a really tough one. Like, I'm sure if we really dig into it, you could probably lean more one way or the other. But I think it kind of was a tossing a coin in the air. He basically went in knowing either I'm about to do this and prove that I shouldn't have told her and that dad was always right, or that this is the person I'm meant to be with and this might work out. Like, I think he really was like, and I mean, we've all done that where you flip a coin for something, but you know, you're hoping for one of the two outcomes more. I think this might've been one of those cases where he went in going, this is either going to, you know, prove everything that I've always known. And I'm going to, you know, walk away from this and like, you know, be hurt. Or this might be the time where it finally does go right. And this was the right thing to do. And I think he might be hoping for one over the other, but that's what I'm not too sure about. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to pull a crappy counseling therapy technique. Do it. 
if you had to make a choice between two decisions, you really wanted heads for the decision that you actually secretly wanted and you decide to toss a coin. You toss a coin and it lands on tails. What's your first gut reaction to do? You're disappointed. I mean, in most cases, before it even lands, I, I, I've been there. I realize which choice I actually really wanted and I disregard the coin and go with the, what, the choice I wanted. Yeah. Now, if you don't have a resilient coping mechanism for disappointment, what you probably do is go, oh, crap, it was tails. Best two out of three. Mm. When you want a particular outcome, and if you're letting quote unquote fate decide, you usually do certain things to try and rig the game. Mm -hmm. You come up with loopholes to try again and try and get the outcome that you want, because that's ultimately what you want. He got the outcome he wanted the first time when she freaked out and left. Damn. So he didn't push it. And that was the point that she makes, where she basically goes... If you were serious about me, you would have tr you would have tried hard. Like think about it. If if I have to tell a person, "Hey, I hunt demons and ghosts." Yeah, those things you don't believe in. I hunt them. I'm probably kind of come, not all people will do this. I'm a little neurotic. I'd probably come with like a PowerPoint presentation and go, "Before you run <laughs> screaming out of the room, just just sit and let me walk you through why I'm not crazy. And if you still think I'm crazy after this, you can leave. But just hear me out." And that's essentially what Cassie says. You didn't do that. I freaked, I thought you were trying to get rid of me. So I did what I thought mm. you wanted. And when you didn't push back, I went... Now, granted, they're both freaking terrible at communication skills. Okay, hold on. Sorry. But are you saying that Dean basically told her to leave, she left, and he did not stop her? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are you saying this to yes. me? Yes. Oh. He never learns. And I feel like there's a, a later season moment with another cast. I'm a... Uh, you think? No. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. They're both... Also, they're like what age at this point? Like 23, 24? Well, he's 26 he's, and she's... I would assume maybe a tad younger, but not that much. Great. So their brains have officially just finished developing. So they're idiots. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't say that at all as a registered social worker. Um, but like, here's the thing, like, they're fundamentally both terrible at communication. Maybe that's the appeal that you, if you, my gut instinct of reading the relationship between them is they're both very clearly terrible at communication. Both of them were expecting the other to up and run. So when mm. the other one gave them an excuse, they ran in a I'm going to protect myself before you can hurt me kind of mode, mm -hmm. which some listeners might be going, oh, my God, all of my relationships have been like that. Yes, we tend to. And I'm including myself in this when we're not comfortable, when we're insecure, when we're not confident in what we're feeling and how we're feeling. We tend to come up with protective measures. And when we meet people that have the same protective measures, it's kind of comforting. You know what the person's going to do because you would do the exact same thing. What changes in theory, unfortunately not in practice in this series, is that at a certain point, that coping mechanism stops serving its purpose. Because yes, you don't get emotionally attached in the ways that you think you will, but you still get hurt and it still sucks and there's still pain. And at a certain point you go, this still sucks and this isn't making it hurt any less. And or you get therapy and you have a therapist like me that goes, so it still hurt. Yes. And it still sucked. Yes. So why are we doing it? 
Are we ready to move into critical time? <laughs> I'm very afraid to, but I think it's time. All right. <laughs> so in critical time this week, we are going to primarily be focusing on race as it is a pretty major point of this episode. And I think really is the messaging they were trying to get across. I mean, even just looking at uh, interracial marriage in the U.S., which was illegal until 1967. I would point out that while Canada might not have had formal laws, we sure as shit had social structures. Oh, we had social structures, and there were social pressures to actually enact such laws. From the research that I did, it was very present. Yeah, I feel like the number of times you see stories of, yeah, no, they uh, abolished slavery, but really how long before that was kind of widespread and like socially acceptable? Let's also be very clear that until... I believe it was the 60s or the 70s, the 70s, actually, there were laws that were preventing certain people from immigrating into Canada because they were, quote unquote, not suited for northern climates. Mm -hmm. So it makes it easier for people not to have interracial marriages when you're just not allowing people of a certain race to come into the country. I would argue the difference between the United States and Canada is the United States codified its racism into laws and bills and policies. Um, Canada just figured out how to... Canada's the equivalent of the southern aunt that looks at you and goes, oh, isn't that sweet? I didn't know you could buy a dress like that at Walmart and you never wear that dress again. Yeah, and unfortunately, and I mean, let's really, really be blunt about it, we are living through a time right now where... We are still having conversations about race all over the world, about how people of color are being treated, how systems are in place. And I, I mean, I'm just going to be very, very blunt. And we see in this episode even a little bit is just how white privilege is still such a thing. And anyone who doesn't understand that, that is white privilege. If we look at the episode, like something that really struck me is that Cassie never cries you know, her voice gets shaky at some point, but she doesn't actually cry. There are no tears rolling from her eyes. And that's despite having lost her father and her boss and like hearing a horrifying story from her mother. The only person who does cry is her white mom. And so I've been wondering, what does it say that the only character displaying emotions or allowed to display emotions is a white woman in this episode like what's the value of a white woman's tears here so a few things cassie not crying i would want to contextualize in her social location which is black women displaying emotion comes with different burdens than white women displaying emotions almost every woman understands being characterized as hysterical mm-hmm and most white women experience their emotions being characterized as hysterical as being used as dismissive of their experiences. For black women, it gets weaponized as being dangerous. So Cassie does not potentially have the luxury of displaying emotion, because if she does, and we see it in that first scene, which is the, the first scene, oh my gosh, the scene in the, the newspaper office, where the mayor basically says, you're too close to this, you're not able to see these things. It's all dismissive of her experience and her thoughts. If she were to cry or scream or react in any way beyond calmness, I would argue, unlike a white woman, it doesn't become evidence of her being emotional. It becomes evidence of her being unhinged 
or threatening or harmful. I'm also going to characterize that for our viewers, I am a white woman. So I, I, I do want to take a moment to just explain that my understanding and the lens through which I see this is not at all based on my own experiences. It can't be based on my own experiences because I'm not going to have those experiences. So a lot of my knowledge is informed in from teachings I've had from professors, from real learnings of getting called out for perpetuating problematic behavior, um, and the information that I've gathered throughout my life and my career where I've, you know, looked at critical race theory and I've looked at quote-unquote anti-racism and what that actually looks like in practice. The reason why I say the mom is, is, is complicated is there's several readings of her crying. She did lose her husband. There's also a component of it that part of her keeping this secret comes from a very real fear of her husband getting killed or put in jail for this behavior. So there is a stress of carrying that fear for years. Oh my God, is someone going to find out? Oh my God, if someone finds out, they're not going to look at it as self-defense. They're going to look at it as murder. They're going to look at it as murder of a white man by a black man in the south of the United States. The one thing I do want to give them kudos for in this episode, despite the fact that this was written by two white writers, if I'm correct? Two white yep. men and one white woman. Yes, is they did do one thing. And again, I am also going to be very transparent here. I am a white man. I have lived a life where it has been touched by white privilege. I am not proud of it, but unfortunately, being white, living in a society that is primarily white and being male, there is some level of it always around you. And in this episode, they use it in an interesting way. Sam kind of gives this whole speech about like how easy he's had life. It's an interesting line because I think we all understand that from an in-character episodic level, he has not had an easy life. Yes, he spent the last several years just being a kid in college, but he's he grew up in a very traumatic household. He's seen things most people haven't seen. But I think it still goes that level of saying like, hey, I as a white person have had the luxuries of going to school and never having to deal with anything that major and look what these people have had to deal with. Look what this society has done to black people. It really does a nice job of at least pointing it out to an audience who might not get it. Because unfortunately, we still today live in a world where someone could watch that episode and go, I don't get it. Why was it so hard for them? Mm. So do I tear this episode apart now or later? Uh, go ahead. So... <laughs> I have a lot of problems with this episode, namely because this episode does, I would actually argue this is the first episode that you're going to see it. And it's going to happen a lot more. It's going to happen most blatantly with Gordon later on in season two. Mm. And I, I have shotgun coming back for that episode. <laughs> this episode to me does not serve the purpose of actually seriously interrogating race and racism. What it serves mm -hmm. to do is frame Dean and Sam as white saviors. Yes. The the reason why I say this is there's, oh man, there's so many parts. There's a few, they're like stuffed in as scene filler in which they highlight the ways in which like Cassie is a black woman working for a newspaper that used to not allow black writers, let alone content about black experiences and black news 
see any reports on the lynchings of black men in the 60s that happened in that town. Mm-hmm. Kind of just like ghosts right over. It's like drop mention this. Let's also just casually mention that the newspaper was bought out by a black man and we'll just drop that in the bucket there. Cassie's framed as a very strong and resilient woman, but is really a side character. Although I I will call this out and Rochelle can totally cut this out, but possibly the scene that made my heart just like Aw, was the scene where Dean turns around to her and is like, stay here with your mom, take care of her, don't leave the house. And he gives it in like the John Winchester commanding voice. And she goes, excuse me? And he goes, don't leave the house, please. Which is like, it's really sweet, but it's also kind of the only substantive moment of her character you know, being independent and a strong, fully developed character for like 30 seconds. Even the argument her and Dean have is primarily dominated by Dean talking about how hard and upsetting it was for him. Yeah. So every Black character in this episode plays a very, very, very minor role to a story about a racist neo-Nazi truck, which does not make frigging sense. Then... We can go into, and Mary points it out in her notes, she's, she's right. We see, what's his name, Cyrus, beating yeah. up Cassie's dad for like 30 seconds. But then we watch a whole minute and a half of his dad fighting back. And it looks pretty yeah. gruesome. Um, I don't... Yeah, I mean, if I can if I yeah. can just like explain my, my train of thought behind that, like... I think that this is what I struggle with the most in this episode. I feel like I could almost skip over the rest, but this is truly the part that I struggle with. Because, like you said, we see, we find out about the things that Cyrus has done, who's the the spirit that we're, that, you know, Sam and Dean are fighting. He has murdered multiple black men. He murdered a children's choir by setting fire to the church they were in. But we never actually see him doing any of this, these killings, right? We see the truck doing his bidding and we see the torch being thrown, but we never see Cyrus killing anyone. Now, keeping in mind, this is a TV show where what you see and what you hear are very important to your understanding of the characters and the story going on. The only person that kills another on screen is Martin, Cassie's dad. We see Martin killing Cyrus, and I just can't help but struggle with that because what message does it send that we never see the white character killing any of the black people that he has killed? We see the black character killing the white murderer. If we can even go a little further in that, there is something about Cyrus that really bothered me in the storytelling, and that is the fact that they had to, one have him murder children to exemplify how evil he was because killing black people wasn't enough. It's never specified the ethnicity, the ethnicity of these children. The fact that this was a church that a interracial couple was going to get married in doesn't tell us if it was a black church, a white church, interracial church. We don't know who these kids were. It's just, Hey, we need to make him more evil. And also the fact that his, racist murders only begin when he finds out his girlfriend was cheating on him with a black man. Like they need to paint it in that he can't just be racist. No one is just racist. He's racist because blank and he's evil, not just because he killed black people, but because he killed children. 
that is mm. yes i understand they did it to write the ending for the church ground thing but i feel like is only there to paint the picture of look how evil he is because they wanted to make sure that listeners and fans of the show would understand how evil he was and just being racist and murdering people for racism wasn't enough for them yes because there is no context of black people in this mm. episode mm. that that's that's the fundamental issue is there is there is no black person and i mean person as in having full personhood identity thoughts feelings experiences at all cassie doesn't even get to have the full range of a character development she is very single dimension single dimensional and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna accept the, the crap argument that it's a limitation of how much screen time she had because i'm sorry joe harvell who you meet has like seven minutes of screen time in another episode and if is a fully developed character. I'll give you three guesses as to the main difference. There is no fully formed black person, black identity, black experience, and this is fundamentally a black experience that they're attempting to tie in to the storyline. And that's the problem. Even finding out the, the context of how this ghost came to be is told from a white woman's perspective. And the complexity of that is... And this is where I think what makes you very uncomfortable, Mary, is she is very much framed as the victim, but there is a complicity mm -hmm. to her actions, which is yes. her actions of cheating on her boyfriend. She was the one in the relationship. She was the one that cheated. She's the one that hold, bears the burden of that responsibility, triggered her ex to go on a rampage. But that culpability is kind of sidestepped. Now, there is the very real trauma and experience of holding a secret for the purpose of safety. Mm -hmm. But we don't afford that same kind of stressor to all of his friends. Actually, mm -hmm. the closest we get to affording that is the person who had the biggest stake in keeping that secret, which was the sheriff, who yeah. was a deputy sheriff at the time and turned to, turned a blind eye. What's very interesting to me is they don't even really unpack that, which is great that he turned a blind eye. Mm -hmm. The follow-up to that is, and this is where we get into discussions around actual anti-racism practice, which is he is a white man in the sheriff's department, even if he's a deputy. So he had some role to play in them not looking into the murders of these black men. Similarly, just like the mom has a role to play in essentially putting, and we talked about this earlier with Dean, putting Martin's life in danger by being in a relationship with him under with the context of what interracial marriages mean. We also don't know whether or not they had a whole discussion over the cheating, whatever. We don't know that. But there is a culpability that needs to be held there. And the problem is, at no point do these systems get held to account. Yeah. Cyrus doesn't even get held to account. He drives mm -hmm. through hallowed ground. Okay, whoop-de-doo. But that's the thing. Is it? This isn't an anti-racist episode. This isn't even mm -hmm. an episode about racism and how racism is bad. And there is a fundamental difference between racism bad and anti-racism work. This is co-opting a black experience to make Dean and Sam above racism and therefore more morally superior to other white men. This really is a, and I think that says a lot, and we've 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 covered it in other episodes. The writing 
something that really should have been written from with, with the involvement of someone who has a more real connection to it. We've seen this with First Nations. We've seen this now with black people. We've seen this even in the treatment of the Wendigo. We've seen this with women even. This really is just a white people writing a white show and trying to do something that they see as positive, which as a bare minimum, at least sort of wags a finger at racism, but is by no means helping. What you're looking for is this is a show that appropriates the cultures and identities of other folks for the personal development of white folks. Yeah, that's exactly the term I was looking for. Thank you very much for putting a pin in that. So then let me ask you both this question here. Mm -hmm. Because we know that on the surface, the monster in this episode is Cyrus and his truck and, you know, hollowed ground and all that stuff. But if we were to dig in a little bit more like we just did, what would you say is the real monster in this episode? So I actually think there was a missed opportunity in this episode. Go on. Cyrus in his... his uh, truck form kills the people that helped hide his body and the sheriff that didn't do anything to bring him to his death to justice and I feel wrong just saying that out loud Tyra, uh, Tyrus, Cyrus targets the system mm-hmm. that prevented his body from le- being laid to rest that's as close as they get to talking about targeting the system The fundamental monster is the fact that systemically racism exists and functions within systems and is held up by systems. Cyrus gets away away with killing black folks because police don't look into those murders because they don't consider black folks to be people. That is a systemic structure. And the more that that behavior is allowed because it's perceived as okay, the more it reinforces that that's okay and that black people are therefore not human or are subhuman, which then reinforces Mm -hmm. racism, which just moves the wheel over and over again. The actual monster is systemic racism. And they don't ever fight that. Mm. In fact, they kind of let it just keep going along. Yeah. And they let it keep going along because there are two sides to Cassie's mom keeping the secret. On one end, it protected her husband from getting arrested. On the other hand, it perpetuates the system from continuing to exist. The complexity comes with the fact that as white people, we do not get to tell black people what they should or should not do to fight systems of power. So, yeah, she Mm -hmm. needed to keep her damn mouth shut until told otherwise to do so. But at this point, her husband's dead. And that, I would say, is the closest we see to Dean actually showing his true character when he basically looks at her and goes, Hi, your daughter's potentially going to die? Whatever shame you have, you need to get over that shit quick. Because we don't Mm -hmm. have time for it. Yeah. And that's the bigger problem, is that the system exists because... White shame is a whole bunch of repressed... You know what? No. Using your previous de- definition, white shame is not repressed. White shame is suppressed. Oof. Because it is a conscious decision to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Are we ready to move on to our Crossroads deal? 
Welcome to the section of the show uh, where normally uh, Mary, myself, and any guests would like to make a deal at the crossroads, giving something up in the episode in order to add something to it or change something, usually with the intent of making the episode better. However, as you have just listened to, this episode was problematic to say the least. And there is, in my opinion, and we've discussed together, not really a good way to fix something that is so beyond repair and bar having this episode rewritten completely or redone entirely to focus on the proper issues. There really isn't a right to have the three of us sit here and say, well, it could be better if it, no, this episode should not have been written the way it was. It could have been done right by the right people. And this was not the people to do it. Yeah, I I think I fundamentally come down in this kind of thought process, which is this episode was a complete co-opting of a Black experience for the purpose of making white folks feel better and look better. And if Supernatural had a genuine intent to tackle racism, it should have been focused on white folks tackling the way they're complicit, what their role is, how Dean and Sam continue to perpetuate that shit. And a really excellent way of starting that is what does a TV show about two white dudes driving through the United States with a literal armory in their trunk say about white privilege? Because you know sure as shit no black hunters dinging up a cemetery in the middle of the night to burn some bones in Mississippi. Mm. Actually, I'm going to say they sure as shit ain't doing it in most places. So maybe that's the thing. Maybe the crossroads deal is that fundamentally <laughs> supernatural functions because the two main characters are allotted all the privileges of being white and male in America. Mm. And there's something that you said also, Carol, that really resonated with me about how the goal is also to make white folks feel better. And there, I can't help but think about the audience of Supernatural and how white it is and how uncomfortable it would have made people in 2005 or even today to have had an episode where they would have been truly confronted. And I'm including myself in that, where we would have been truly confronted with with white supremacy, white privilege, white complicity, and I think in order to preserve the audience, they made that choice to write the episode as it is. And that speaks to the privilege not only of the characters, but the privilege of the characters that's reflected in the audience as well. Yeah, Drew, I'll actually challenge you with this. Please. While you, since you're watching this for the first time, find me a black character on Supernatural that is not evil or amoral. Oof. I will keep my eyes out. I mean, at this point, we've had one, and I want Missouri back, please. I miss her. She was so good. Oh, okay, okay. Let me rephrase this. Find me a black character on Supernatural that is not a villain, amoral, or killed. Well, I mean, I've had my suspicions about Missouri, but they were never confirmed. Oh, fuck. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was very, very clearly led down that path. I knew yeah. it was coming. I just didn't want to know it. Yeah, I mean, because I love it, her. It's frustrating for me because I grew up watching these shows, and the thing that I liked about these shows, and the thing that really spoke to me, was the concept of of found family and of fluid identity, not just 
your gender identity or your sexual orientation mm-hmm. identity, but the fluidity of identity. So Sam can go from being a quote unquote bookworm to being mm-hmm. a hunter. And those two things are not fundamentally opposed. And it's it was really frustrating and upsetting as I got older to start to realize that that fluidity is only allotted to the white characters and predominantly the white male characters. Yeah. Yes, we can say there's a lot of context of time, but there's context of time for a certain social location. And that mm. social location is predominantly middle class and white that we're mm. seeing an evolution in thought and reckoning with institutions of racism. And that's slowly starting to happen. So yeah, we can say, yes, that's you can look at Supernatural through that lens. But the reality is, dollars to donuts, if you were to talk to anybody who is not part of that demographic, they probably in 2005 would have watched the show and said, you got to be fucking kidding me. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, like, when I opened, what I said is, you know, and I hope to make clear is, I, I am white. I come from now a pretty affluent family in the sense that like my parents own a house in full and I am able to pay my bills on time etc 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 I come from a pretty white affluent social location and what I know and understand of racism anti-racism work critical race theory indigenous reclaiming all comes from having had my ass called out in class more than once, having taken teachers that make me uncomfortable, um, Mm. having read books that make me uncomfortable, and having fundamentally learned from the work of predominantly Black women, Indigenous women, uh, in Canada. And, And that's what informs my information, and it's how I understand these works, and it's reading these works through a white lens informed by critical race and anti racist theory. That's that's where I come from. That but that knowledge comes from a great amount of work. And it's not work that is inaccessible. Google is free. Mm-hmm. And for your listeners that want to learn more, I am happy to provide you like the list of books. Mary and True can see it. I have like a pile of books on my mm-hmm. table that I went back and I read through. But I would say, like, if you fall into that category that you, the first time you watched this episode, you didn't recognize these things, or even now, as we're pointing them out, you're starting to recognize them, start reading, start trying to unpack why you felt so comfortable with these things, why you didn't notice these things. And in the words of one, one of my favorite professors, Percy Lazard, thank you so much, Your guilt is something you need to process, but it does not serve a purpose to the wider community. So you have to deal with that shit on your own. Get a counselor. Talk to a therapist. I'm really good to listening to people about their guilt around their complicitness in various situations. But when you go into community and when you go to do that work, you got to leave your shit at the door. Because that community doesn't have time, space, or bandwidth to walk you through your shit at the same time as they're trying to get through theirs. Exactly. It doesn't become about you anymore. It's about the community that you're trying to serve. Yes. And uh, the greatest lesson I ever learned is wherever you go, whatever situation you're in, look at who's talking, look at who's not talking, and consider what the subject is about and are the people that should be talking talking and are the people that shouldn't be talking sitting down and being quiet. 
That's a wonderful lesson to learn, Carol. Thank you so much for everything. Truly, thank you for being on this episode. I feel like looking at what we've discussed today, I don't think I would have been able to get through it without someone like you to really wrangle it the way you have. So thank you. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu and myself, Drew Shulman. This week, we'd like to thank Carol Ferry for joining us. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram using at carryingwayward. Subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including some special episodes, and please leave us a review. It really does help. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends.